Welcome to the TEFL Training Institute podcast, the bite-sized TEFL podcast for teachers, trainers, and managers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our podcast. It's been six years since we started TEFL Training Institute podcast. First, thank you so much for following us for the last six years. Maybe people only. This might be the first time they'll turn around <laughs> to listen. Yeah, but still welcome. <laughs> so,、uh, what's our topic on this special episode, Ross? So, what I wanted to do for this episode was something a little bit different to normal. Normally, I think on the podcast we talk about concepts, but this episode we're going to talk about people. When I was growing up, this was kind of pre. Internet, so in the mid 1990s, and I was getting into rock music. I used to go to a record store, and in the record store at the back for sale, they had this book, and the book was called The Great Rock Discography. And in the book, it had lots and lots of bands that I liked, and where it had the bands, it also had the bands that influenced them. So you could go and look up like a band you liked, and then find out which bands that band liked. And that got me into more and more great music. And what we're going to do today is speak to lots of people that have influenced us, and ask them who influenced you. And then hopefully,、uh, there's something that make you feel interested, and you can、um, dig in more, right? Yeah. Find out about those people too. So who are going to be the guests, and、okay. tell us the people inspired them? Right. So first up. We have Deirdre Van Gerp, Cert Tiesel and Diploma Tiesel trainer, who used to be my boss. And as I think I've said in the podcast before, he was the first person that made me realize that there was more to language teaching than just、uh, flashcards and flyswats. <laughs> and we've got、uh, David Crystal, and who is a world famous linguist and author of over a hundred books. So、uh, if you listen to our previous podcast, and David Crystal talked about. The history of English, and and also talk about the standard English. Great. Third is Debbie Heppelwhite, MBE and advisor to the British government on phonics and general phonics guru. And I'll let you do number four. And we've got Stephen Crescent, and I think、uh, you know our audience, and you should be very familiar with his name. And fifth is Vivian Cook, author, applied linguist, and researcher. And sixth. Jack C. Richards, author of many course books and teachers' books, and also a huge influence on me, I think, as a as a teacher trainer. So the next one is Hugh Deller, and who is the author of a series of books and also the founder of Lexical Lab. And the next one is Penny Er. I think Penny is one of the most influential people to me in my career. So she was awarded. OBE for service to English language, and she has been a teacher for more than thirty-five years, and also、uh, the author of many books like Discussion and More, a course in language teaching, etc. Nine is Alan Maley, author, and he's also been called one of the fathers of modern language teaching.、Hmm. And the last one is our regular guest, Dave Weller. So Dave runs his own blog. BarefootTeflTeacher.com.、Uh, I think if you listen to our pod- podcast more than I don't know three or four episodes, <laughs> you probably have listened to Dave. And at the end, Tracy and I will talk a bit about our influences. So, 
Enjoy the episode. Dietrich, what, as someone that's been doing this for, for a long time, almost what, 20 years close to at this point, I'm sure you've influenced a lot of other people. You definitely influenced me along the way. Who has influenced you and what, what did they do? Could be a could be a, a trainer or a colleague or an author or, or, or anything you like, really. Colleagues I worked with in Hong Kong. Um, worked, uh, I worked with as teacher trainers, opening my eyes, I think, to methods and approaches or techniques that I considered to be old-fashioned or outdated or that you didn't like yourself as a language learner. And actually, some of that stuff is quite valuable. So I've come around on drilling. Um, I never used to do that, but now I actually quite like it. I think I like it as a student, as a teacher. Um, and I think students also find it quite valuable. Course books I used to hate. I mean, I've experienced too many teachers who don't know how to use it. And that's also a skill that I acquired. So, so say that again, like using a course book, is it? Yeah. Or a, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I hated a course book as a student. Because so it's like just any course book. Any course book. Yeah. Um, so I hated it as a teacher as well. I don't need it. I don't want to use it. But now I, I've learned the skill how to bring it alive. And I, I quite like it, especially if it's on paper, not the most promising material. And if you can make that work, you know, that's so much fun. Um, <laughs> it's so, almost like more of a challenge. Yes, isn't absolutely. It? It almost give me something tough and I'll, I'll see if I can do something because yeah. um, I think as a new teacher there's almost a thing there of you know you know who, who wrote this and you don't know my students and you yeah. know who, who are you to dictate to me what yeah. I ought yeah. to teach here yes yeah, yeah. Um, you used the word dictate so um, I quite like dictations now all these things that so somehow got out of that? fashion like what, what, what kind of dictate like today I did a beep dictation so it was about controlled and free practice and then lesson staging so I dictate it, I say beep and there is a gap and then they compare answers, so that's take the gloss and then fill in the gaps. And so the gaps being like something where the students get to be creative or is it like a prediction type thing? No, key information about what actually is the difference between different kinds of practice in a productive skills lesson. So almost going against the free practice approach and then toying with that a little bit. So, Dictogloss, so, so, I also quite like, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. So, so, so that noticing thing that's going on there. And so the, the, the beep thing is what you say beep what, when it comes to the bit that you need to write down? or is it They, they write a gap then. Ah. So it's basically a gap fill. Oh, I see. Also, an activity, that's still something I don't really like, a gap fill. <laughs> <laughs> and the beep thing is just probably your the best, best here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's still those those things that you will never really like, I think, the things you've seen too many times. But anyway, your question was more about people who've influenced yeah. you. So I think people who, were, for whatever reason, were using techniques that I always considered as absolutely no-go, and then somehow you think, oh, maybe I should try it. Changing that's, that's your... almost like a meta point there, though, yeah. isn't there, of like maybe we're too quick to write things off. Absolutely. And that, that maybe yeah. almost with everything, there's some yeah. good thing to find in there, you know, yeah. almost like that, you know, with every method, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, yes. that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. Um, Michael Lewis had a big impact, um, looking at words beyond word level, looking beyond sentence level. The best one is your namesake, because actually um, I have referred to uh, Scott Thornbury as Ross Thornbury and vice versa. <laughs> oh, it's not. Oh, D- Dave has mentioned this many times that he gets, I think, Simon Sometimes, as well. Sometimes, and I'm talking about Ross Thornbury. 
in the dick, in the in the bibliography Ruffy or something. Or something yeah, yeah. Um, but he's a, he's a brilliant writer, um, especially in covering grammar. But pretty much have anything he writes. I, I write. I think he had a book called About Language. Yeah. I don't know if you read yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I love that in that he seemed to take this approach to writing a book about language that was it, almost like a task-based approach to teaching teachers grammar or that language was, or discourse. Yes, yes, yeah, where yeah. we'll sort of ask yeah. you a question and yeah. give you a task and let you yes. work it out yourself. Yes, and then there are some suggested answers so you're not totally lost. Yeah, but um, I love that as a, yeah, as a yeah. you know, very... Yeah. Obviously, that that's such a basic tenet of teaching English as a yeah. foreign language and yeah. then no one really does that in books apart yeah. from that one example. Yeah. and then... The, um, it's, I think maybe the discovery of discourse, like looking beyond the sentence and then realizing like teachers don't really focus enough on, okay, you have this isolated phrase and it's grammatically correct, it's fluent, but actually the response to that doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't say this now. And then looking at that is a lot more challenging, to be honest. But he has written brilliant books, uh, it's like Beyond the Sentence. I think it's him as well, no? I'm not sure. Yeah, Actually, anyway, I have to Google that. that up, yeah. Ping that. Um, <laughs> Dogme, did he write that as well? That's Teaching Unplugged? That's, yes, that's oh, the That was also like, absolutely love that approach. Really? Brilliant. Tell me more about that. That's, that's... Um, I discovered uh, the existence of it fairly early on. I'm also a movie buff, so it kind of came from... That's a German the, movies or something? No, the Scandinavian movies, oh, okay. uh, like Lars von Trier and Thomas Winterberg. So, basically, you got the special effects taking over, Jurassic Park in the early 90s. Cardboard characters, great to look at, fantastic movies in many ways, but it's all special effects. And then they, these guys went against it and said, like, only real actors, only real props, no artificial lighting and anything. So what was happening in the classroom was exactly the same, was, like, people hiding behind a DVD player or PPT slides or handouts, and, oh, they're finished, we give them another handout. This idea, I think, was, like, let's get back to the basics. And like there are only two things allowed. It's the whiteboard or the blackboard back then and the students. You can use the student as a resource. And I think he was just like, look, everything is just a tool. Let's just go back to the basics. I loved it. So recently uh, on the Sir Tiesel, actually, some of the model classes, if the group is very strong, the last model class we do... Uh, an unplugged lesson. Wow. A dogme approach. And it's sweating bullets. <laughs> if you're observed. Otherwise, of course, it's a bit of free flow. But you do need quite a lot of skill to not let it just become some kind of English corner thing where you just waffle a little bit and students practice language they already know. I love, by the way, that idea of, like you say, almost setting yourself this challenge of no handouts, no DVD player, <laughs> yeah, yeah. no this, no that. And I remember doing that as a new trainer at some point. I remember doing this as a teacher, first of all, and saying... I'm going to try and not speak and see how yeah. far I can teach for yeah. the class of yeah. seven-year-olds without speaking. And then my equivalent for that as a teacher trainer was doing a training for three days and saying, I'm not going to give my opinion on anything. Oh, brilliant. I'm only going to either give handouts or read things and constantly facilitate yeah. and, and yeah. ask questions. They must have gotten irritated at some point. Uh, no, maybe. I think they, they probably did get a bit frustrated. and probably wasn't the best training <laughs> I've ever done. But I think I definitely emerged at the other end with better questioning yeah. techniques yeah. And, and maybe more confidence that you yes. could just go in yeah. without a piece of yeah. whatever. Yeah. Give yourself limitations. It's um, Orson Welles of Citizen Kane, arguably the best movie of all time, 
he set himself limitations. I think it's something like just two camera angles or whatever. Oh. Too long ago that I studied that movie. It was basically, okay, give yourself these limitations because his point was no limitations is the enemy of creativity. Mm. So if there are no limitations, well, you just can do whatever you want right. and this, the story can totally derail. There is music as well, like Bella yeah, Bartok, yeah. I think, doing like, yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you have to play these notes in a certain order yeah. and go through yeah. this process. There yeah. is a book, um, I haven't read it yet, but my colleague has it by Fanslow. Uh, something, have you heard of him? I think Late Alan 80s? It's, it's, yes, this. yes, yeah. that's his book. It's actually quite, a, it's not Do the, the most, opposite, is it? Yeah, yeah. The, the most, not the most accessible thing. But it was like one of the things he tried was like sitting down with, with, an, with a young learner class. So I'm not going to get up from my chair. Wow. <laughs> you sit there, you know, like you really want to get up. Um, but it's kind of pushing yourself out of the comfort zone and then yes. reflecting on it. And I think that's, I mean, I think the point where we were getting to here is that's such an important thing in your own development because it's yeah. so easy, I think, as a teacher oh. or a trainer after a year or two years yeah. just to go, I've got my repertoire, I'm good, I get good feedback. You do the same one again the same and thing. again. Yeah. Did even the jokes are timed. Yes. You know? I mean, ever, many teachers will recognize that one. <laughs> Absolutely. And then, and how on earth do you ever get out of that? And I think the answer to, you know, apart from find a new job, is that's set yourself yeah. these limitations. And yeah. that's the thing that's going to yeah. push you beyond. Yeah, and try something new. Huh? Yeah. Professor David Crystal, you've had a massive influence on linguistics over the last 50 years. I apologize in advance because this might be a hard question for you to answer, but is there anyone in your career who's had a huge influence on you that's that's influenced you maybe more than anyone else? Oh, that's, that's an easy, easy question to answer. Absolutely. Randolph Quirk. Uh, Randolph Quirk, uh, who started the Survey of English Usage in London in 1960, uh, with whom I got my first job, with whom I wrote my first book, and with whom I kept in touch all over the years until he died. He, he was without doubt, I mean, he turned me from being a literary undergraduate to a linguistic undergraduate in one hour in a lecture course at University College when I first started as, as an undergraduate, my degree in English. So him, without a shadow of a doubt. That must have been a pretty amazing lecture to change the whole course of your career in the space of an hour. Um, what, what on earth did he say? I know. In he came. Well, you have to remember that in those days, uh, one was taught the history of English very much as a written form of the language. So in my first year of studies there, uh, it was very philology, not linguistics. Um, so we were taught about spellings and we were taught that certain spellings represented a diphthong. And nobody told me what a diphthong was. You know, it's just a spelling represents a different. Or th this change represents breaking. Uh, what's breaking? Well, it turns out it's a phonetic process, but nobody explained it in that way. In comes Randolph uh, in the first lecture of his History of the Language uh, course and says, write this down in phonetic transcription. And we all look at each other and say, what? what what's that? You know? And then he said, you don't know what it is? Because he knew damn well that we didn't know what it was. He said... Get yourselves over to the phonetics department and learn some phonetics. So I thought, all right, I will, I will. And I went over and I learned some phonetics. And I mean, I became a phonetician and that's, that changed everything. Yeah, I'd read that you initially 
uh, a lot of your work in linguistics was related to phonology and phonetics when you first got started in the field. Was that the same for Randolph Quirk? Was his main area of interest uh, phonetics and pronunciation as well? Well, in the sense that um, it wasn't just phonetics then, but he was equally exciting about grammar and vocabulary and all the rest of it, and especially about style, and especially about the crucial relationship between language and literature. For me, you see, language and literature are two sides of a coin, whereas in many parts of the world, the language department is over there, and the literature department is over there, and they never talk to each other, you know? But for me, that just cannot be the case, and it was for Randolph too, and, and, and uh, he taught me that, you know, li literature is the best use of language, and therefore linguists need to study it. Conversely, literary people need to know the medium through which they're writing, therefore they need to study language, you know, and bring the two sides together like that. So it was a much more general thing. But ultimately, I mean, what Randolph did with the survey of English usage was for the first time write a grammar of the spoken language, because all grammars previously had been of the written language only. So this is the point where, you know, he'd get tape recordings of uh, everyday speech and we'd transcribe them and analyze them and so on. It's the job, main job I was doing. And this was really exciting. It was cutting edge stuff in those days. And it was the first corpus, remember? One million words. And it was felt to be a huge challenge to get to one million words. All on cards, you know, no internet, no electronics, no, no computers in that sense. All on cards, transcribed onto paper, you know. So one mil getting one million done in the time that he did it was just amazing. Yeah, I think that's amazing. A million words in a corpus without a computer is quite incredible. H how did you do it then? W was it all just uh, recording conversations with people or, or did you have different types of speech that make up the corpus? Because obviously when you put a microphone in front of someone, y you have the observer paradox. What the I think the Labov quote is, the aim of linguistic research in the community must be to find out how people talk when they're not being systematically observed. Yet we can only obtain this data by systematic observation. That That's the paradox, right? That as soon as you put a microphone in front of someone, mm -hmm. the speech that you get isn't natural. So so was that a big challenge for you in, in building the corpus? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a whole range of stuff um, that was from the formal kind of speech you get on the radio and things like that to informal speech where you knew you were being recorded, informal speech where you didn't know you were being recorded. Uh, so, in, I mean, these days, it, privacy and so on would, would say, you can't do this, you can't do this. But in those days, that wasn't such an issue. You know, he, he would hide the microphone. When people would come and visit him, and they wouldn't know they were being recorded. You might tell them afterwards. I did this a lot. Uh, me and Derek Davey wrote a book called Advanced Conversational English back in the 1970s where the entire database is based on me inviting people to my house, for example, Derek, same sort of thing, invite them in to have a chat, um, to record them with good quality recording in a technique that won't bother you with for the moment, and then at the end of the evening say, hey, I've just recorded you, you know, do you mind? Um, and nobody ever minded because they knew I was a lunatic. And you get excellent stuff that way, and it's really very interesting data as you say, it avoids the observer paradox. So I suppose that would avoid the observer's paradox for the people you were speaking to, and they might be speaking naturally, but presumably you and the other linguists involved, you would be speaking differently because you knew that you were being recorded, right? Ah, 
Well, that's right. So I know they're being recorded. So unfortunately, guys, um, oh, five minutes into the conversation, there's a telephone call. Um, I, I, I have to go and take the telephone call. So I leave the room. And then, oh, come back half an hour late. Sorry, I really am sorry. And, and that, that was the technique. Um, but it, it worked beautifully because now th these days, of course, you don't need to do that sort of thing anymore. Youngsters these days are so used to being recorded and recording each other. There are huge corpora out there now with fantastic conversations, which are as natural as you could possibly imagine. They just forget uh, that they're being recorded, completely forget. You know, you get everything that you wouldn't do if, in the old days if you knew you are being recorded. You know, they swear, they, they do all the things that you'd hope they would do. And the young generation now is just totally used to that. Well, great, David. That was absolutely wonderful to hear both about Randolph and about the, the first ever uh, Corpus of Spoken English. Thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful talking to you. Not at all. I'm so glad this, uh, this serendipitously came up a few weeks ago. Welcome back to the podcast, Debbie Heppelwhite. You've had a huge influence, I think, on a very, very large number of teachers with your phonics trainings, writings, and publications. Is there someone in your professional career who's had a big influence on you? Oh, do you know, the minute you said that, I thought about a lady who was the very first head teacher of a school, you know, where I had my first job. And my first teaching job was actually with a two-year band, it was with a class that was both year six and year seven. So you're talking about 10 to 12-year-olds. And in that class, this is tragic, there were two children who were not literate. They couldn't read and write. I made the assumption that because they couldn't, by the time they got to me, and I had such fabulous colleagues, every teacher works hard and wants the best for the children. I thought they were unteachable and I was totally ill-equipped to know how to teach reading and writing. So I didn't teach them to read and write and they wasted another year. And those two children's faces haunt me. But anyway, when I wasn't happy in that school, because they went from a system where you had your own class all of the time and the following year they, they set children and you had to swap. And I, I didn't thrive as well in that scenario because I'd have my own methods and standards and then I'd get children who were a bit more casual and it was harder work. And I went and complained to the head teacher. And she said, well, Debbie, do this professionally. She said, don't come complaining to me. Don't get upset. She said, put it on paper. Explain what it is that is the problem. Evaluate it professionally. And it was the most important thing that was ever said to me. So now when I hear from people all over the world or I'm on Twitter or networks and, and people are unhappy or they have an unjust situation or they feel something's wrong or something unjust, I say to them, do it professionally, put it on paper, evaluate the scenario. And then when it's on paper, people are accountable to respond. So if you do a formal letter of complaint or, or, or an analysis, they become accountable to you to respond to that rather than you verbally complaining. But in doing the evaluation process, you get clarity of mind. You can organize your thoughts. And ever since then, if there's any scenario, I mean, you know, doing consultancy, going and observing, it's almost like you have to analyze the problem and then you have to bring the solution. So I want teachers from here to go back to their class and think, what made sense? What am I doing in this classroom that's not quite as good as it could be? How can I 
turn my hard work into something that's going to be easier for the children to learn and to remember? How can I improve teaching? But how can I improve learning? And the whole direction of education is going in the wrong direction. You know, interactive whiteboards switch off, computers switch off. We're losing some of the, the foundational basics which, which help us to be learned, like handwriting, like having a folder of your own work. So I'm not anti-technology whatsoever, but we have to hang on to those basic fundamental simplicities of going from brain to hand to, to visuals. Professor Stephen Krashen, welcome back. I wanted to ask you for a moment about your influences, because you're obviously someone whose ideas and writings have had a huge impact, I think, on language teaching and language learning in general. Looking back on your career, who has had maybe the, the biggest influence on you and why? Well, let me, let, me, let me answer this in two ways. In the past, great teachers, absolutely. Uh, again, yeah, Chomsky totally influenced me, uh, not as in terms of language teaching, but in terms of how to be a scientist, how to think like a scientist, etc. There's no one like him. In my uh, developing my own work, when I found Frank Smith's work, for example, Reading Without Nonsense, which I read in one sitting, I found my work all there, written years before I ever even started, with different sources of research supporting it and very well expressed. So I've been, you know, there are people I really admire who've taught me things, who've pushed me on to the next level, no question. The people who have influenced me since have been my former students, people who freely and vigorously tell me I'm wrong. It's been unbelievable. I had a group of students in the 1990s, and we're still working together. Nico Mason being one, she was actually not quite my student, but sort of. Uh, Kung Suk Cho, we're still in touch in Korea, Si and Lee. And then they have students who I refer to as my grand students, who are constantly testing the theory to see if it's so. You don't find new things by simply believing other people's stuff. You find new things by testing the theory all the time. That's why replication is so important. And we have been doing that and discovering where the problems are. The problems are from my colleagues, my former students to a large extent, Ken Smith, now uh, formerly in Taiwan, uh, now in New Zealand, trying to test it, see if it's right. Jeff McQuillan has been doing this for years with my work and his own work. This is where you find the problems. You find the problems by trying to see if it's true. Then you get them. And I, just to be nasty, my critics don't do that. Uh, many of my critics, I won't name anybody, but uh, have said things like, well, Krashen's obviously wrong because so-and-so said he was wrong and so-and-so said he was wrong. Turns out the two people had totally opposite views. One said it's obviously true. The other said it's obviously false. Or other people say, yeah, but a lot of people disagree. The, the latest one is we've gone on. We're beyond Krashen. We've gone on to other things. And my response is, tell me what you've gone on to. What is the next step? If there's counter evidence, I want to know. Look, if you can come up with a better theory that explains the data better, I would love it because I could then retire. Show me any place where the hypotheses we've worked with have not made the right predictions or there's new data that's counter evidence. Wherever there's been apparent counter evidence, we look hard and we get a better theory, a deeper theory. You mentioned critics there. 
What's the best criticism that you've ever heard of the comprehensible input hypothesis? Have you have you ever heard any critiques of that that have given you kind of pause for thought? No, not really. Uh, all they've said is that it's not enough and that we need an eclectic approach, a little of this, a little of that. And it's just common sense. You know, no, it's not. Do, do we need two theories of how the uh, digestive system works? No. Or how the brain works? No, we just need one. One good hypothesis. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on. It was a real pleasure. Okay, Russ. Thanks. Professor Vivian Cook, you are someone that's inspired me a lot in my teaching and training and materials writing. Who has influenced you and inspired you in your career and why? The most impressive person I've ever encountered professionally was the late Michael Halliday, whose talk on generative grammar made me understand it for the first time when I was a student. His Isla talk on green linguistics was totally eye-opening. His emphasis on language is a central part of human life, and his early functional systemic work was indeed inspirational. Unfortunately, he spent most of his life in Australia, and his rather difficult writing style never had the impact of his spoken talks, as any of his ex-students would say. And of course, Chomsky exploded on linguistics in England in the 1960s. The only one of my evening courses in Ealing to ever have a queue round the block was the one on Chomsky. He too rooted language in the human being and in human values, the individual mind, rather than Halliday's individual in society. Again, many readers became lost in the technical aspects of his writings, which is why I wrote my Chomsky introduction. Whether you agree with him or not, I confess I don't get on very well with the minimalist programme. Everybody's view of language has changed because of his theories. In writing, I find I've been sympathetic to Uriel Weinreich, François Grosjean, Michael Swan, Jan Holstein, and Michel Paradis, who are straight and honest people with clear minds from which partisanship and pedantry are missing, unlike so many in the field. The prefaces to my books also list my musician heroes, say Sidney Bechet, Miles Davis, and Mike Osborne without whom my life would have been much poorer. You mentioned musicians, jazz musicians there. I'm always interested in the parallels between teaching and other fields. I noticed that you often include examples related to football and some other sports in your books. Are there any parallels that you can see between football or or any other sports and language teaching or, or language learning? Football? Goodness! If you live in Newcastle, which I did for 11 years part-time, football is taken very seriously, so I did speak enough football to join in local conversations. The only sport I competed in, badly, was archery, where there are two styles, one instinctive and natural, the other conscious and training dependent. In the 70s, a similar distinction was made in language teaching based on tennis styles, paralleling Krashen's acquisition versus learning. I think this does reflect something that researchers never really captured, possibly because it varies from one individual to another, or one culture to another. Teaching methods swing between these two poles, say grammar translation on the one hand, 
versus communicative teaching on the other. In a sense, the ideal is ambiguous teaching, where the students themselves could decide how to tackle a particular task. But it's difficult to design teaching that would allow this. Professor Jack Richards, welcome back. You've been a huge influence on me in the way that I think about teacher development. And I think when I read the books Beyond Training and Reflection in Second Language Classrooms, it really completely changed the way that I thought about teacher development. Can you tell us a bit about who has influenced you in your career? Well, of course, um, people influence, influence you in different ways because some people might have had an influence on one aspect of your understanding others on, on, on others. So it's not as if one person suddenly opened the, all the doors. For example, Donald, Donald Freeman in the, in the area of teacher education. I've learned a lot from his work and from knowing Donald, but he, again, he's mainly specialized in teacher education. My friend Dick Schmidt, University of Hawaii, who has since passed on, unfortunately, but we worked cl quite closely together. And uh, he was a specialist on second language acquisition. So um, I think he shaped a lot of my understanding of those issues. So a number of people that I've met and worked with over the years um, have all influenced me in different ways, I would say. I've had some fantastic colleagues and, and learned a lot from all of them. So one picks up little bits and pieces. I, even when I started out in my career, there was a colleague of mine here in New Zealand who really prompted me to start thinking about some aspects of what it means to learn English as a foreign language or as a second language directed me to books to read and so on when I was really getting started. So somebody who's been around as long as I have, you've met so many people and um, been to so many conferences and so on. And some, mostly people I've worked with in universities and so on as colleagues that have uh, had a big impact on my own thinking. Martha Pennington uh, helped, a lot, helped me a lot with thinking about the teaching of the skills, for example, and my friend Anne Burns, who's also um, uh, been one of the people who introduced me to the idea of action research, for example. That's one of her specialties. So some people have uh, led me to a particular technique or methodology that um, I hadn't had time to think about or I hadn't really had a lot of contact with until I met and started working with them. Do you want to tell us then a bit about maybe how teachers can learn from their colleagues? I mean, you mentioned there are a lot of colleagues who've influenced you, uh, but I think that doesn't always happen. I've certainly worked in one or two schools where, you know, I'm trying to encourage people to share best practices. People have flat out said, why would I want to share my best ideas with, with other teachers? What do you think that maybe trainers and schools can do to encourage teachers to, to want to learn from each other? Well, yes. Um, I don't know if you've seen my book. Uh, I have a recent Cambridge book called 50 Tips for Teacher Development or something of that nature, which um, does a whole section on that, if I recall. But the main thing, I think, is to think that teaching is often considered something you do in private, and yet um, you don't often have opportunities to observe other teachers or they don't want you to observe them or to share um, problems with other teachers. But if you think of a school as a community of practice, collectively, there's a huge amount of experience there. You know, teachers will all be experts in different things. Some will be fabulous at working with children. Some might be specialists in using drama, for example. And so you need to find ways of tapping into the individual expertise of teachers and also rewarding them 
you know, opportunities through shared um, brown bag lunches or um, teachers taking turns and giving little talks about things that they're interested in and so on, giving teachers a, a, a chance to showcase their expertise, often through uh, shared activities. Really shared lesson planning is a very good example, for example, and there's a whole uh, approach to teacher education, the lesson study approach, which was developed in Japan, where teachers collaboratively plan a lesson, take turns teaching it, and then come back and share how it went based on the context in which they they worked. So, yeah, any opportunities for teachers to, first of all, recognize that collectively they know a lot more than any one individual teacher would on his or her own. But that also requires the right mindset from the institution, that the institution has to recognize that this is a legitimate form of professional inquiry and professional development, and teachers should be encouraged to take part in it, and the school or the institution should be committed to it so that it's not an add-on to the teacher's job description, really, but a, a core part of it. So it requires a sort of top-down strategy from the school as well as um, opportunities for teachers to get together and work in this way. And that, that I think, is... I, I remember visiting a school in Brazil where the teacher said, you know, would you like to hear about some some research we've been doing? And I said, sure. And these teachers were looking at um, how they gave feedback to student errors. And they had got one of the technicians to video classes of intermediate, basic and advanced level classes to look at what sort of errors they corrected and were there differences in the errors that they corrected with basic students, intermediate students and so on. And they found interesting differences there. Now, they had done that out of their own interest in how they collectively address learners' errors and should every error be corrected and what sort of errors should uh, be left alone and so on. Now, that obviously reflected a school where there was a culture of collaboration and um, teachers were motivated to do that. They weren't asked to do it or required to do it. So it arose uh, from the bottom up, if you like. So, you know, those that was a quite inspiring experience for me. Now, you don't always get that feeling when you go into school. Sometimes teachers don't have time for that, or the school itself does not provide opportunities for teachers to work together and to showcase their ideas in that kind of way. So that, I think, is worth thinking about. Great example there, that school in Brazil, uh, where teachers are so happy to learn from each other. Uh, from an example from the other end of the spectrum, my, my dad was a teacher his whole career, and I once asked him about how much he was able to learn from his colleagues. And he said that people, there was such a culture of not observing each other that the, his method was to wait till everyone was on their lunch break and then walk around and look at what people had written <laughs> on the boards. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a nice example of a strategy, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, to see how. Uh, what the teaching points had been and how the teacher made use of the blackboard as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, thank you very much <laughs> yeah. for joining us, Professor Richards. It was, a, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Very welcome. Okay, all the best. I'm here with Hugh Deller. Hugh, thanks for coming on again. Hugh, would you like to tell us a bit about who has influenced you? Is there anyone in your career that you feel has maybe influenced you more than other people? And uh, yeah, if so, how and, and why? In a sense, I would say an unobvious answer and, and possibly a cheating answer, which is my students. I think I've learned most 
from things that have happened to me in classrooms, usually bad, where students have challenged me or asked me questions that have made me reflect on what I was doing and realise the idiocy of things and change them. So I would say most of the actual real pivotal moments that have led to me developing and, and moving in certain directions have been clarified for me by little moments, many of which are very, very memorable and still kind of present in my head that have led to me developing new rules of thumb or new principles to think and teach by. Those have come from students. Outside of that, I think the obvious answer would be Michael Lewis and Jimmy Hill, partly because I read the lexical approach both at a kind of, you know, a young impressionable age, but also at a time when I needed to read it and it resonated with me. And the fact that I was, you know, I read it two years after it came out and I was probably among the very, very first generation of writers who were able to bring some understanding of that into ELT materials. So it provided me with a window of opportunity in a sense. Also, the fact that the first book I did was with Michael and Jimmy's publishing company meant that we spent a lot of time hanging out with them and talking to them and arguing with them and engaging in heated debates in the pub, you know, over long afternoons with them. And I learned a hell of a lot from that. And I think the fact that it was a different system in place back then, I think now it's much harder to come through as a young writer. It's a bit like being a young footballer and trying to break through at Chelsea or Man City or something. It's not going to happen because they're just going to bring in the Galacticos above you uh, and pay them more money. When I was a young writer, I was lucky in that I was picked up by an independent publisher and I was brought through the youth team, if you like, and I was mentored and trained and equipped with ways of thinking about my craft that have stayed with me. So I think both in terms of giving me a way of thinking about language and giving me a sense of principles to write by and teach by, I learned a hell of a lot from those two. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the lexical approach itself and how that book influenced you before you met Michael and Jimmy? I mean, what drew you to the lexical approach, the approach, and what, what even drew you to the lexical approach, the book? I think partly it was my own educational background, in a sense. I did an English Lit degree, and at the end of doing an English Lit degree, I was sort of filled with an overwhelming sense of essentially being unable to do anything apart from sit in pubs and talk about Keats. And later, when I started teaching, I realised that what doing an English Lit degree had helped me with or equipped me with was a sort of fairly analytical brain in terms of looking at and thinking about how language worked. So I guess there was partly that. There, there was a sort of a critical ability to, to think about language. Partly it was just teaching and students often asking questions that I would start to answer and then realise I was answering badly because I hadn't paid sufficient attention to context. You know, students would ask you something like, what does guilty mean? And you'd start answering a question about court cases and judges and they'd sort of look at you like you were mad and say, no, I mean here. And they'd show you a sentence which said, I felt really guilty about it. And you'd sort of have to go, ah, oh. <laughs> yeah, just ignore what I've been telling you for the last five minutes. So partly just a sort of slow realisation through the process of teaching and interacting with students and seeing English through their eyes, this realisation that there was obviously more to 
how language worked than just single words. On top of all of that, I think it was very much for me properly learning a foreign language. I lived in Indonesia for getting on for four years. And the first year or so, I was very much trying to impose English onto Indonesian and getting frustrated that Indonesian didn't work in the way that I thought a language should work and that the way that Indonesians expressed themselves seemed illogical or, or kind of dumb to me and I wanted them to express themselves in ways that I would say things. And then slowly realising that in the end, you just have to kind of submit to the way the language is and accept that it's different to your own language. And I learned a lot of fixed bits of language that were very useful for me. I also learned lots of bits of language initially that I thought I knew, like words which translated directly to English. And I'd start to use them and sooner or later I'd realise that they didn't work in the way that I thought they were because I was thinking of the English way of them working. So I remember very early on learning how to say in Indonesian, let's check the answers to low-level classes and kind of, you know, impressing them that, oh, you speak a bit of our language. And me sort of going, ah, oh, yes, you know, we're both here to learn. And then some Indonesian friends coming around to my house and me saying to them in Indonesian, I'm just going to check the food using the same verb. And they all fell on the floor laughing, kind of going, why is it doing its homework? And I was sort of confused and not sure what the joke was. And, you know, actually what they would say is, I'm going to see the food directly translated. And for me, this was just, you know, what kind of mad people are you with your crazy language? <laughs> why, why don't you use check in the correct way? And it was just recognising that the way words interacted with other words was much more complex than maybe I'd initially realised when I first started teaching, I think. And then when I read the lexical approach, that way of looking at language and that way of seeing things like collocation and fixed expressions and chunks as being important, very much resonating with my own experience of teaching and learning languages, I suppose. And then to go back to talking about Michael Lewis, who died in, in 2019, which was sad. Um, do, do you want to tell us a bit more about Michael and, and what it was like working with him? Yeah, it was sad. And yeah, I don't know. He, he didn't retire well. He was a good example of how not to retire, Michael. It was a very sad way to see someone go. But, you know, but I would say outside of my students, without a doubt, those two. The first time I ever saw Michael talk, I, I got taken along to see him in about 1996. I think I was probably still doing my Delta. And he was doing a talk about stylistics in language teaching, which at this point was something I had no concept of or clue about. And it was quite niche and quite oblique. And at the end, someone put their hand up and said, Mr. Lewis, I just wondered, you haven't said anything about pronunciation. And Michael, in a classic sort of Michael moment, completely lost it and was almost foaming at the mouth and sort of basically said, Madam, I refer you to the title of the talk, Stylistics and Language Teaching. Which part of the title led you to believe I might be talking about pronunciation? You will notice I have also said nothing about. And then he listed a whole load of things that his talk hadn't been about. And then when he sort of finished wiping the, the, the sort of seething phlegm from his mouth, he then turned around to the rest of the audience and said, has anyone got a sensible question? There was this kind of terrified silence in the room as everyone looked at their shoes. And that was sort of his standard interactional mode, generally. But much as he was a very, very smart man, he, he wasn't particularly gifted with the sort of social skills that might have elevated him onto the next level. And um, he, he didn't 
tolerate people that he regarded as having said foolish things, particularly kindly. When Michael first phoned us to offer us a book deal, we'd actually sent our, our proposal off to a whole load of people. And we'd been up for an interview at OUP who, who kind of picked our brains for about two hours. And um, we then ended up rejecting their offer because they wanted us to write a book that we hadn't proposed rather than the book that we'd proposed. And about a week later, the phone went and it was this voice that said, oh, is that Hugh Deller? It's Michael Lewis. And I thought it was the guy I was writing with at the time, Daryl. So I basically sort of went, bugger off, Daryl. I know it's you and slammed the phone down. And about five minutes later, this sort of bemused Yorkshire voice phoned up again and went, um, it, it, I don't know what's going on, but it really is Michael Lewis. Is that Hugh Della? He was like, oh, my God. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, sir. Sir, <laughs> how can I help you? And that was my first encounter with him, telling him to bugger off because I didn't believe it was him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic story. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, Hugh. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, thanks Hugh. for asking and for your interest. Penny Ur, thank you so much for joining us. Penny, you continue to be a huge influence on teachers and trainers. Uh, you certainly influenced me a lot with your book, a course in language teaching when I was a new trainer. Can you tell us who has influenced you in your career? Um, Michael Swan probably is the first and most important one. He, he was uh, the editor of the first books I wrote and he was absolutely brilliant. I used to send him my first scripts of my books and they came back with red barrow marks all over them. You know, this was in the days of paper. Very, very critical, but very supportive at the same time. And in a sense, a role model for me, someone who won't stand any nonsense, but on the other hand, is very, very supportive and teaches you how to learn as well as teaching you. Uh, and I think he is absolutely brilliant and a, a very critical and incisive mind. Another completely different kind of influence, I think, is Andrew Wright, who, when I was a young teacher, came to Israel to give a series of seminars, and I found them absolutely inspiring in the sense that he showed me how language learning can be both effective and fun. It's not, it's not either one or the other. It's not, let's stop doing all this serious language learning and play games, but this is how games, drawings, and having fun can contribute and does contribute to effective learning, as well as Andrew has this marvellous personality, which, uh, of course, enhances everything he teaches, but he was someone who really opened my eyes to how to teach well and how to enjoy it and how to get your students to enjoy it. Various other people, Alan Maley, also as, as uh, someone who taught me about creativity, particularly, and how to think outside the black box and, and do original and fun things, particularly in the area of literature. Tessa Woodward, who I worked with uh, at Pilgrim's years and years ago, and also opened my eyes to all sorts of rather more humanistically oriented. I mean, I'm not, I have a lot of reservations about the humanistic movement. I think it focuses on a person, personality in a world of, of, the, of the learner and using that in order to learn. I think you, you need to look at the stuff written by uh, Mary Rin Velucri, particularly Tessa Woodward herself, John Morgan, people like that. As I say, I I'm, have some reservations about it. Um, I wouldn't call myself a humanistic teacher, but it certainly has contributed to the field and in, very interesting to read about. But uh, the way Tessa interprets and uses humanistic techniques in her, in her teaching is 
really amazing and, and she gave me an enormous amount and I'm still in touch with her today and we have a lot in common. So those are perhaps some names of people who've inspired me. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Penny. Okay. Bye. Alan Maley, welcome back to the podcast. Alan, you've been called one of the founding fathers of the modern ELT field. Alan, who has influenced you in your career? Well, there are a number of people. Earl Stevick, for example, I would say was a big influence. I mean, we knew each other. I wasn't a close friend, but I mean, we worked. Uh, he did a book that I edited and yeah, he, he was a very influential figure in the humanistic movement, if you like, uh, in the early days, and very influential in the way that he approached the whole, you know, language learning experience. And, and he was very influential on me. He wrote a book called Memory, Meaning and Method. That was one of his well-known books. He would have been yeah, an important person. Not exactly an influence, but a, a very important figure in in my own development is uh, is Alan Duff, who is my co-author for many years, and now dead, unfortunately, prematurely, because we worked together, you know, at the time when the ferment was going on, you know, about communicative language learning and all the new ideas were coming out. And we were in Paris together, and Paris was a wonderful place to be any time. So six years in Paris, working together, producing books, you know, like The Mind's Eye and other books too, drama techniques and various other things. And he was just a fund of good ideas, basically. And um, he's one of the people that I would say I could have learning conversations with you know you didn't set out with any kind of agenda we met all the time we used to have lunch together most days and nearly always something a thread would develop in the conversation which was which led somewhere and that was very important to me i have a similar kind of relationship though not, though we don't write books together with um with adrian underhill at the moment we meet maybe three or four times a year for lunch it goes on for three or four hours, and we we find at the end that we've had a really important learning conversation together. So those are two people who I'd say, you know, influences, yes, but in a more kind of equal relationship. And then I would, I would certainly mention N.S. Prabhu, who I was lucky enough to, he worked for me in India, and then I worked with him in Singapore as a kind of radical thinker about these matters. He's basically the, the godfather of the um, task-based learning, though he very rarely gets the acknowledgement. And, you know, he was a person who thought things through from first principles and quite fearless in expressing controversial um, views. So, uh, yeah, but there, there we are. There are two people, there's Stevik and Prabhu, and then there are two close collaborators Alan Duff and Adrian Underhill. So Alan you mentioned there the sort of uh, learning conversations that you were able to have with both 
Alan Duff and more recently with Adrian Underhill. Do you have any advice for people trying to sort of find that kind of professional and, and critical friendship? Well, yeah, it would be nice if, you know, there, <laughs> there isn't the kind of list out there that you can pick from. Um, I think it, it's partly luck in finding yourself with the opportunity to, uh, to to benefit from those things. And it's partly, I think, being open to it in a way looking for it. You know, your antennae are out. And so, you know, you might, uh, I mean, a more recent example would, would be Tamás Kish, for example, who is Hungarian, but he worked, I think he's still working in China, actually. He's much younger than I am, but, you know, we had a few conversations um, and it was on the basis of that that I invited him to, to co-write the book with me because, you know, he's got he's got a lot of perceptions that I don't have. He, he's coming from a slightly different place in uh, intellectually, uh, much more research-oriented than I ever am. Um, and yet we found that we could work very closely together. So, you know, I think it's partly being open to the possibility that there might be other people out there uh, that you might work with. Great, Alan, thank you for joining us. Nice to speak to you, Ros. Bye. Welcome back to the podcast, Dave Weller. <laughs> Dave, you've influenced me a lot as a, as a peer and a collaborator and things over the years. You don't have to name me back then. <laughs> well, that's a relief because, you know, you haven't. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> Who's influenced you in your career? It could be colleagues or writers or, or anything, really. Um, well, you have us. <laughs> oh, thanks, Dave. No, I think, uh, but you're just part of a kind of group of people, which are mm. uh, teachers I work with. You read a lot, you talk a lot, but the, the discussions and the input that's changed my behavior the most as a teacher has always been the peers I work with. I think I've been very lucky to work in some, some, okay, some media, some good schools, some mediocre schools, but with great people. You know, oftentimes, you know, you get into that spiral upwards in the staff room of teachers walk out. Oh, I did something really good. Today. I tried something new, and it really and it worked. And everyone says, "Oh, what did you try?" Um, you know, every teacher's looking for something, you know, a new activity or a new task. But after a while, it turns into more theoretical-based discussions. Oh, well, I tried this, and maybe my behavior management for these young learners wasn't great. You know, I, it was a, it was a riot in there today. I don't know what to do. And then a teacher says, "Oh, I had that group last term. They're actually try this, 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 and watch out for so and so." And these discussions over you know, months and years inform your practice so much. And then I think when you start reading more, maybe for a further qualification in teaching, suddenly you're confronted with names for all the principles that you've been doing, but you've kind of learned bottom up from, you've learned from experience and the combined experience of the whole staff room. And so, yeah, I'd say those have been my, my biggest influences. Yeah, it's an interesting point that, that when you do a course, a lot of the time you already have the how, but you're just maybe learning the the why. So really interesting point as well that what a lot of professional development takes place not in the training room or anything, it just takes place in the, the ten minute break or in the between pub. classes. <laughs> or in the pub, yeah. So I wanted to ask you a bit about because you've obviously been a teacher for a long time and a director of studies as well. What's a way of trying to create that atmosphere in the staff room where people maybe either are interested to talk about teaching or they see it as being 
Like it's not an uncool thing to come in and, and talk about teaching or being just open to kind of asking for, for help. That's a really good question because some staff rooms you see are totally silent. You know, teachers just come in, heads down, do their job, print out the materials, walk in, and it's, it's a bit soul-destroying, really. Or, or it's just all banter and there's, there's nothing actually about teaching. I've had that True. as well. Yeah, so I think the best way to do it is if you are... Well, actually, you can be anybody. You can be a teacher, you can be a senior teacher or a director of studies. Make sure you're teaching as well. So don't, if you're a manager, don't avoid teaching and don't give it all to your teachers. And then when you finish the class, walk in the staff room and go, oh, I had a really great class. Oh, I had an awful class. Or, hey, guys, who's taught this group before? Any suggestions? You know, you are responsible for starting that conversation. And at first, yeah, sure, you'll get some resistance, especially if it's a quiet classroom where you have quite a few reserved people in there or newer teachers. But I think it just takes one enthusiastic person to start to change the tone of a staff room. Great. Yeah, I think it just almost making it okay or cool to be to be seen to be talking about teaching because I think there, there's also this thing in some places that's like, you know, oh, I don't, I'm just naturally good at this. Like, I don't need to. <laughs> do, do you never probably hear that? not? Because <laughs> that's something that I hear people say, maybe not always about themselves, but but I have heard several people say, you know, oh, this person's just a naturally good teacher. That might be part of some people's identity. That if anyone described themselves as a naturally good teacher, they'd be first on my list of teachers to observe. <laughs> That's a warning flag right there. So if you're if you're working for Dave Weller in future, you think you're a natural, don't give your mouth shut. Cool. All right, Dave. Thanks a lot. No worries. Thank you very much. Okay, so we heard there from a lot of friends and experts about their influences. Tracy, over to you. Who, who has been a big influence on your career and why? Uh, Apart from me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. Um, so the first person I would talk about is my mentor. When I was a teacher in a public school uh, as an English teacher, so I just graduated and she basically guided me through a whole year uh, when I was a new teacher. This is working in a public, public school. Yeah, public school. So I think people probably have heard like the regulations and the rules in public schools and what the structure like and what's the teacher's role like. It was a bit hierarchical. As a new teacher, you didn't really have a lot of freedom to explore or experiment new things because you are freshly graduated university from university and you had a lot of, uh, I would say, knowledge or information that you like to try and see how it works in the real classroom with students. So compared to the other teachers in the English department, they had been teaching English for more than five years uh, or even 10 years. So I didn't really know what kind of model uh, or principle that I should follow in my class. And But my mentor actually encouraged me to experiment a lot of new ideas. And one thing, it sounds really simple, but it was kind of, uh, it seems like I was trying to break the mold, was using English only in my classroom. Because now you're thinking, oh, what are you talking about, Tracy? <laughs> of course, and like uh, so many schools and organizations and promotes this. But back then, uh, still quite teacher-centered uh, and the first language-based 
So when was this? What Two, year? 2006. Yeah. Okay. So I was thinking how I would improve the environment and for students have more chance to emerge in the English environment as much as possible. So I thought, okay, I, I could start using English only in my classroom. And when I say English only, it doesn't mean don't use any Chinese uh, in my class. But ma- mainly I, I was trying to use English to teach English. Yeah, my mentor encouraged me a lot. And at the very beginning, she sat down uh, with me uh, every week and asked me, okay, what's your plan for doing this? And what's the rationale? And what is the result And you'd like to see? And how do you think it's going to impact the student's learning? So I, I think I probably did it for like three months. So she asked me, you know, to tell her about the result. And then what did you find out? Of course, in between, we sat down and I told her about all the challenges. So some students, their listening wasn't very great. And I struggled and I have to be very careful with how I greet my language to most of the students level. And also like how I need to support maybe more one-on-one tutorial for a couple of students after the class. And then I see, I think it has a positive impact. She said, okay, can you tell me why? What's the evidence? Of course, and we did examine here and there. So I can see um, from three months ago, the listening and reading exercise, um, the student's ability has been improved. I'm not saying everybody has a dramatic improvement, but I can see the impact there. This is just one example, but I think she was really important there to give me the confidence and also empower me to experiment. Maybe something didn't work out very well, but she was there to support me. And of course, she's the head teacher in my department, and she was there to talk to other higher level people in my school and to allow me to do the experiment. I think without her, I wouldn't have the freedom to do that. I think after that, I have that kind of mindset and confident what we saw, what we read from the book, and also what we are doing in real life might be different and we need to try out. Sounds like she also got you to think about things in a logical, or at least encouraged you to think about things in a logical manner of what problems do you expect? What's the evidence that's working? Yeah, I think that's definitely set a high quality benchmark for self-development. And you don't want to tell people, I want to do it just for want to do it sake. And you want to do it for a positive impact. And you want to do it for making a change on the student's learning and also the teaching aspect. So I really appreciate that she was there. Um, I think she's one of the most important person for my career. And did she not also encourage you later on to leave and go and work somewhere else, right? <laughs> yeah, I forgot that. Um, I think she realized that I kind of uh, like proacting mindset or approach and she realized maybe working in the public school probably not the best fit for me for that period of time so encouraged me to leave so what about you Ross because I basically talk about the mentor that I had at the very early stage of my career is there anyone that uh, maybe not my first year but in my second year I had a couple of managers that influenced me not with any particular ideas but just made me realize that there's more to language teaching than just playing games with kids and I think my first year of teaching anyway. Uh, that's what I thought it was about. But I think, first of all, Dietrich van Gorp, who you know you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you will have heard on the podcast before, 
made me realize that. And also a later manager, Andrew Brown, also made me realize the same thing. But after that, I would also mention uh, Penny Orr. Uh, I remember like before I did my diploma, I, I would like to study like a language teaching in a more systematic way. So I started reading more books, you know, talking about this. There are a couple of books actually I would like to mention. And one is uh, a course in English language teaching. I don't know if you have read that book or not. Yes. <laughs> okay. And um, interestingly, this is one of the book I used in my university. So my major was language education. So this is one of the key book actually we, we used. And another book from her is called uh, The Five Minutes Activities. I still remember when I started teaching in after school center, that book was so popular because you can see many people use it so often because it's getting older and older and older. I think what makes her writing so good is that she's been based in the classroom her entire career. So I think she's always writing from a very practical standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, that book's got the subtitle Practice and Theory rather than Theory and Practice for, for that reason, the, the, the course in language teaching one. So how about you, Rautzen, about later on your career, anyone who influenced you? I think the mid part of my career was dominated by doing teacher training. And the person that influenced me most in that was Jack Richards. I think he had maybe two or three principles that influenced me a lot from different books. The first one that really blew my mind was this idea that in-service teacher training rarely works, that it often just has short-term effects and doesn't really lead teachers down the path of reflecting on their own teaching. I remember at the time thinking, wow, <laughs> why is it that everywhere I've ever worked, the backbone of teacher development is always in-service teacher training workshops when that doesn't work. So that to me was amazing uh, and and first got me thinking about, well, what are the different things that teachers can do to develop if going to a one hour a week teacher training session is not the answer. And then another great idea that, that he talks about in his writing is that your theory of training must reflect your theory of teaching. So in other words, like whatever you say works according to teaching principles, right? That we believe in communicative language teaching or something like that. Well, then you've got to then have teachers communicating in your, your training. Or, you know, if we believe that one-to-one -one teaching is the best model, then probably your training should also reflect something similar to that. And then something more recently that he's written about that I like is this idea that teacher development used to be about going from theory to practice but now it's really about going from practice to theory. You know, we had specialists who would write methodologies and teachers' jobs was to implement them in the classroom. But now much more developments about getting teachers to look at their own practice and see what are the underlying beliefs and getting teachers to say, or at least think about, what's your own personal theory of teaching? What do you believe that works? And then you can start to question that. After doing teacher training for a long time, I got more involved in materials writing. And I think in that, at least, Brian Tomlinson was the biggest influence on me. These ideas that, for example, that language learning requires some sort of deep processing. So really getting students to either think about something deeply or feel some sort of emotion while they're learning. And if you cannot do either of those things, then probably what happens in your lessons is going to be forgotten. Uh, that's one thing. And then this other idea of 
organizing materials and I guess just organizing language teaching really around interesting and engaging content or compelling content. I think as Stephen Krashen would say, rather than organizing it around a series of language points. I think that's got two massive benefits. One obviously is that it helps you do the first thing, right? Helps you encourage emotions and helps you to get students to think about things. But also it allows this spaced practice and spaced repetition. You know, we don't have what normally happens in course books where, you know, unit one covers a certain topic and then that topic doesn't appear again in the rest of the book or there's a grammar structure in unit eight and it doesn't appear at all in unit seven or unit nine. There's also obviously lots and lots of other people and I think you don't have to name them all because they're often guests on the podcast. Um, but yeah, I think those are the main at least authors for me that have had a, a big influence. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, everyone. And if you've been with us for a long time, thanks for listening to us for the last six years. And I hope you keep enjoying our podcast. And we're looking forward to your feedback and... And your positive reviews on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, thanks, everyone. All right. Goodbye. Bye. videos and blogs, visit our website www.tefltraininginstitute.com. If you've got a question or a topic you'd like us to discuss, leave us a comment. And if you want to keep up to date with our latest content, add us on WeChat at Tefl Training Institute. And if you enjoy our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Mm-hmm.